Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Vallow. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Each week, Brian, Ed, Nathan, and I, all historians, take a topic from the headlines and try to see how we got here. But every few weeks, we mix it up with what we call the first draft, which is basically a more freewheeling conversation where each of us brings a news story that's caught our eye. Today on the podcast, we'll tackle the Boy Scouts' decision to admit girls public support for a possible war with North Korea, and the prevailing idea that the United States is a Judeo-Christian nation. No big ideas there. (laughs) We'll also wrap up the conversation with a segment that we call footnotes, which is when one of us brings in something that we found in the archives that we really want to share with our co-hosts and with you. So, Ed, why don't you start us off? Well, I have to admit, knowing that I have World War III and the Judeo-Christian tradition following me makes Boy Scouts seem not quite the momentous issue. Well, after World War III, we won't have to worry about the Judeo-Christian tradition. (laughs) Well, this way we can ease into history. And, you know, I saw this story, and uh, the controversy of the day is that the Boy Scouts have announced that they will open some of their activities to girls. Uh, People across the political spectrum are— disenchanted with this. People on the right say this is one more instance of political correctness. Other people see this as a sign of the attack on boys, uh, as is so evident from every structure of power and authority in the country that, <laughs> that men just don't have a chance these days. And uh, right. <laughs> But that this war on boys is this is just a part of a trend in which in think 2013, the Boy Scouts admitted gay scouts right. and then admitted gay leaders right. and now in 2015 admitted transgender youth. So, Where will it end? They'll be tearing down the statue of George Washington before we know it. <laughs> so um, then you have on... The other side, Girl Scouts say, we don't need to have admission to the Boy Scouts. Uh, We're a vibrant organization ourselves, and we think that it would be wiser for the Boy Scouts to do their thing, the Girl Scouts to do ours. Mm -hmm. The main issue seems to be, let's, let's try a quick test. What's the highest award that you can get in Boy Scouts? Eagle Scout, no? That's right. What's the highest award you can get in Girl Scouts? Uh, I obviously didn't get there. <laughs> yeah. The gold award. Oh. So that's that's kind of the point right off the bat. One could see arguing that if people already know Eagle Scout, just let girls join the Boy Scouts and they can make their way to Eagle Scout. Yeah, just sacrifice 100 years of institution building by the Girl Scouts. Hey, you sound like a historian. <laughs> well, so this is the debate. <laughs> Boy Scouts, you may not be surprised to learn, and Girl Scouts, too, are in decline. Uh, Mm. And I'd be curious if you guys could guess, when would you think that scouting peaked in terms Hmm. of number of people involved? 1954. Okay. I would say the 1970s. Okay. And I was going to go for the 60s, so. (laughs) Okay. 
Well, as it turns out, uh, Nathan is right. It, it peaks in 1971 um, and with about six million kids. Now, defenders of the Girl Scouts say this is clearly a ploy on the part of Boy Scouts to stop their loss in numbers. Now, The Onion had a, a good line about all this story. It said, as long as we have some vaguely nationalist, vaguely uh, <laughs> religious organization organizing our youth, I'm fine with it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So I think that's the way a lot of people would see it. it it's that it is a vestige of an earlier time when, when kids were uh, eager to dress up in uniforms and be put through these joint activities. Scouting was actually a pretty important part of my life. It gave me lots of opportunities I wouldn't have had mm-hmm. otherwise. But it's it seems that it's sort of out of step. So and I don't know whether the uniforms are in step or out of step, but I, I think the concept of mixing up girls and boys is completely in step with our demand for choice. We have entered an age of so many choices. And honestly, you know much more about this than I do, but I don't know why we can't have Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and Boy Scouts that have girls in it and Girl Scouts that have boys in it. Look what we did with universities. Even co-ed universities had pretty much separate spheres. And now it's all mixed together, but we still have colleges that are just for women. Mm. But that's the very thing that some of the defenders of the Girl Scouts in the face of this Boy Scout incursion are saying is that single-sex participation is better for young girls. And the Girl Scouts are a place where young women don't have to think about guys being around all the time and can not only rise to positions of leadership, but can also be themselves. So, Joanne, I'm curious, did, that, did the Girl Scouts play that role for you? Um, I think the Girl Scouts, um, that was probably the only single-sex place that I was, uh-huh. and I think that I felt that, and I sort of felt like on a certain level— I don't even know how to say this. Not that it was a safe space, but that it was a less thought required yeah, right, right. <laughs> space, you know, that it was, mm-hmm, a, it was in a sense, a, a safe space. My particular troop did lots of sort of artsy craftsy things, which right. I don't think I was amazingly excited about. So that's, I think, as far as what I took away from it, I didn't take away a lot other than the fact that I was hanging out with a bunch of girls. Right. Nathan, I don't want to impugn your citizenship, but you haven't mentioned any scouting experience. Uh-oh. I, I have zero scouting experience. So why is um, that? Um, well, I was active in my church growing up, as, as I've spoken on before. I was an altar boy for 10 years and an elector, um, and that was my involvement. We did hurricane relief stuff. We, I was part of youth groups. You know, there was a lot of outreach that we did do. Um, but I will say, I mean, just as somebody who had friends who were in both Boy and Girl Scouts, I mean, they, they, had, they did different things. And I wonder what happens when you remove those distinctions. I mean, it was good to know where I could get my cookies every year, right? <laughs> or who among us would know how to, like, make a campfire or something. Those are, are different things that were In case were you want to warm up the cookies, right? <laughs> cookies account for half of all Girl Scout revenue, and it's a billion dollars a year. Wow. Right? So think about it. And the Boy Scouts have nothing like this. And this is something mm. that people on different sides have said. The boys just get to do cooler stuff. Right. I don't right. want to sell cookies and huh. make things. I'd rather be out hiking and kayak and stuff. And the defenders of the Girl Scouts say, we do plenty of all that. That's just stereotypical that we don't. Well, that gets back to Brian's point, though, right? That you could say that then you're offering choice for the kind of girl who wants to do hiking and doesn't feel like her troop is doing it. Yes, or in my case, play touch football and to earn badges 
identify the, f- the, the make and model and year of the f- next 10 cars that drive Man, by. I, I we, had, that. we had kind of an urban variation on, <laughs> on, on Cub Scouting, as you may have noticed, right. Ed. Well, you know, ironically, I think the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts have been fighting since the very beginning. The Boy Scouts sued the Girl Scouts over the word scout. In 1920, oh, no. right? Uh, and the thing, too, is the Girl Scouts have been seen as progressive and feminist, and Boy Scouts have been seen as conservative. But as early as 1924, Scouts with physical disabilities were able to earn particular merit badges that, wow. they, that they could proceed. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. In 1927, they created interracial service activities to promote scouting among African-American, Native American, Hispanic, and Japanese communities. In 1927, as we know, this Mm -hmm. is the peak of anti-immigration laws and so forth. Um, And so the Boy Scouts, perhaps contrary to some stereotypes, have sort of been progressive along the ways, uh, the ecological movement as well as these kinds of um, social movements. So I think what you see is this most recent episode creates the impression that this is a sudden change in a stagnant organization. But looking back over its history, it's constantly trying to maintain its salience in American life. Okay, so let's move on to our second topic. Brian, what caught your attention this week? Joanne, well, what caught my eye, or I should say my ear, are all the bellicose words coming out of the White House, Donald Trump's threatening language vis-a-vis North Korea and threatening some pretty scary actions. He's talked about uh, bringing down a reign of fire and fury on the North Koreans. He's talked about totally destroying the country. The press coverage largely has been, what if these words push us into an accidental war? Hmm. What if Kim Jong-un mistakes these words and takes them too seriously when Trump doesn't really mean them seriously? But we haven't talked very much about what these words are doing to Americans themselves. And Mm. so what caught my eye was a recent Quinnipiac poll that said that 46% of Republicans, a plurality of Republicans, actually support a preemptive strike against Mm. North Korea. I'd like to talk today about the way the American public is interpreting those words. Joanne, why don't we start at the beginning? Are there instances of war talk, war fever, successfully ginning up the public in the early republic? Well, there is. Um, And there's a striking example that um, the public gets (laughs) ginned up uh, above and beyond where the government actually is. And this has to do with um, a French controversy in 1793, when a fellow named Edmund Genet comes to the United States as a minister and tries to rile up the public so that they will create privateers and go with France to war against England. Mm -hmm. And not only is that in and of itself kind of shocking, but America had declared neutrality. So 
Genet is getting everyone all riled up and he, you know, his message, the words he's using about, you know, the spark of liberty traveling from America to France. I mean, that people had a reaction to that. Meanwhile, the government, the national government, Washington is saying, wait. <laughs> so they wait had to kind of tamp things down. Yeah, yeah, and and ultimately asked for his recall, although he he didn't get recalled. But yeah, they had to tamp things down. They took to the newspapers. Um, Genet actually didn't fully understand the Constitution and threatened to go above Washington's head to the American people. That didn't play really well. So it was it was a it was a moment. Um, but it was a moment where the people got ahead of the government. Well, you think about the American Civil War. Uh, the white South portrays Lincoln as a warmonger because he calls out militia to put down the rebellion in South Carolina. But they have forced him into that by firing on a United States fort. And so we think of a lot of the great words that Lincoln spoke are actually pacifist. He is the one, not unlike in the early Republic with Joanne, the president's coming in and calling for the better angels of our nature and calling for us to to work things out. On both sides, the Confederacy and in the United States, however, uh Young men in particular were calling for war, by which they meant one battle <laughs> that was going yeah. to finally <laughs> shut the other side up for once. Mm-hmm. And people— uh, And they really thought of it as one big battle? Yeah. That nobody foresaw anything like four years of war and the equivalent wow. of eight million people wow. killed. So there's the instance where the president— is the kind of the suppressant and the population Mm. is, Mm -hmm. let's put these people in their place and stop this debate and get on with American history. Well, I confess that when I read this article about uh, President Trump's words in North Korea, I had the Spanish-American War in mind and I had my high school history class uh, that talked about yellow journalism Mm -hmm. and the war of words that led to a shooting war the uh, war against Spain. Yeah, they always taught us half that in high school. Remember the main. <laughs> right, the other right. half of it was, yeah. to hell with Spain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what responsibility for teaching I don't things. think I ever heard that second yeah, half. Yeah, well, fact, so. double hockey sticks. You don't want to just be yeah. saying that from <laughs> high school kids. And, uh, yeah, I think the Spanish-American War is usually understood, certainly in our textbooks, as the time when the press spun up what otherwise would have been an inchoate uh, military situation and got the American people fired up, albeit briefly, long mm-hmm. enough to whip the decrepit Spanish Empire. But the 20th century, this play between foreign events, foreign challenge, American population and presidential power seems to be a little more complicated. That's absolutely right. And that's in part because um, the wars or the commitments to war become more massive. Right. Uh, you talked about how that wasn't expected in the Civil War. Well, it was in World War One right, and World right. War Two, And so just take the example of the 1930s, Americans were pretty strongly convinced that America should not get into any kind of military engagement. And in fact, President Trump's motto, America first, uh, is an echo of a movement of isolationists in the 1930s who said, America first, we, this, is, this is not our problem. Mm-hmm. And so we think it's great in retrospect that President Roosevelt ginned up a massive American support. Of course, he might not have plunged America into war without Pearl Harbor. So what about after World War II, Brian? Uh, Americans wanted to be done with wars after World War II. We radically reduced the size of the military. We slashed military budgets. But as policymakers and President Truman, 
saw communists on the march, then we needed, we being President Truman, the State Department, the government, really needed basically to scare Americans. And of course, communism is seen on the march in Asia too. The origins of the current conflict in Korea is at exactly mm. the same time. That, that's exactly right. And the point here is that be careful what you wish for, right? The public did get scared about communism, and that produced McCarthyism, where basically Americans overreacted to the mm. threat of communism. And, and that's why when I heard uh, this public opinion poll, I know that Trump is talking to Kim Jong-un, but the American public is listening. I mean, the, the example that jumps to mind for me actually comes from, from Trump's own lifetime. And when we think about the immensely unpopular Vietnam War that, you know, hit the presidency of Richard Nixon when he assumed office in 1969, 1970, it was clear that there wasn't going to be the stomach to wage a prolonged battle in Southeast Asia anymore. And, you know, Nixon basically develops an entirely new approach to foreign policy, which he himself calls the madman theory, right, which is to project that he's a little bit insane um, and that he's willing to push the button and and exercise the nuclear solution to any kind of problem that makes him angry. And this is a direct response to the fact that he can't proclaim to any leader who's watching the news that the American people are behind what's going on and supporting what's going on in Vietnam anymore. So there's another wrinkle now that has to be accounted for by foreign leaders, which is that, okay, if the American people don't have the stomach for the conflict, Nixon might well do anything. Now, Nathan, does the public get that message or is that a message that's aimed abroad? That's a message that's going by way of phone calls and by way of messaging just between officials. I mean, people have their own, certainly, popular ideas of Nixon and, and who he is. But my sense is that's meant more for the diplomatic community. Okay, then that's that's interesting because then we're at this kind of weird and interesting moment that has to do with how the president sends messages to foreign leaders and how the president speaks to the public. And this mm. has to do with Twitter and with the president's Twitter habit. When he sends out these tweets with this really powerful, overwrought language, everyone sees it, right? The American right. public sees it. Foreign leaders see it. And it's there and it's written in front of you. It's direct from the president to the people. There's no mediating force like the press. And so there's kind of no way to control outcomes or implications or reactions to that. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we're left in this constant kind of zone of not really knowing what those words will do. You can aim a message at the public, and that can have world repercussions. Great point, Joanne. In ways that you never expect. I want to talk about the scouts again. Okay, so let's get to our third and final topic. Nathan, tell us what's on your mind. Well, again, it goes back to presidential words sparking an idea. Um, and last Friday, I was actually uh, out to eat with my wife and was watching Donald Trump on the television closed caption and just reading the text of what he was saying. He was addressing a group called the Value Voters Summit. They have a, a pretty interesting um, history. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center considered them to be an anti-LGBT group, but they're also considered by many to be representative of, of the conservative uh, faith-based 
um, polity in this country. And so the, the address, which was very much about Trump pronouncing and asserting that the country was going to resuscitate its Judeo-Christian values, that his administration was going to make it possible to step away from Happy Holiday and more general celebrations and be able to say Merry Christmas again, and very much in keeping with many of the talking points of the day, as a gift to America for Christmas, he was going to give everybody tax cuts to help American <laughs> families, right? So just in hearing the, the, the speech and this assertion about Judeo-Christian values, it got me thinking about when exactly did these assertions become commonplace? What kinds of things really make it possible and necessary for presidents to assert that we are, in fact, a Judeo-Christian country? Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that in the founding era, and of course, anyone who wants to make a claim about America's faith immediately jumps back and claims a founder, pick a founder, Mm -hmm. and that founder will say something (laughs) that makes you happy. But in fact, what was happening in that period was more about divisions and tolerance than statements of unity when it came to faith. So the, the founding generation basically was just trying to say any faith is is welcome here. You know, it, it doesn't matter what your faith is. They say that again and again. Now, Jefferson, of course, is really open-minded and liberal in this period, so he says it in a whole bunch of ways, but others do too. There's a famous letter that George Washington writes to Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, um, in which Washington kind of makes it a statement about the nation and religion. And he says, for happily... The government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. That's a strong statement. And that's really where that founding generation was coming from. And I know that um, on all sides of this debate, people like to point to founding documents and talk about whether God appears in it. Does the word God appear in this document? I I heard... Somewhere on TV recently, God appears four times in the Declaration of Independence. Trump cited that exact statistic, absolutely. Well, but it's nature's God. It's, you know, you could have a debate about what exactly that word means because Mm -hmm. it's it's never just God. It's always framed in some sort of way. So as long as we're talking about words and founding documents, the fact of the matter is it's interesting to look at the words that the founding generation used when they were talking about God. I mean, George Washington liked to refer to providence, which— is a pleasantly fuzzy term that that can have a lot of meanings. And I think that's one reason that Abraham Lincoln um, referred to providence a great deal. We do see over the course of the Civil War that he does begin to speak of God more, but not in this specifically Judeo-Christian format. He speaks of God much like providence, of an unknowable supreme being who has his purposes that are being enacted in history. Then in the second half of the 19th century, this same division that Joanne's referring to becomes ever, ever more pronounced as America is an evangelical Protestant nation at this time, but enormous waves of Jewish immigrants, of Catholics becoming ever more powerful. Uh, and so in some ways, Judeo-Christian becomes a way to paper over differences between Protestants right. and Catholics and Jews, right? And so at the same time, we think of America as becoming more religious. In some ways, this is a kind of maneuver that allows mm-hmm. us to go to the church of your own choice, as things yeah, said in the and 1950s. And, and that paper mm-hmm. was pretty paper thin for right. much of the 19th and early 20th century because, as we've talked about on Backstory many times, uh, there was open hostility between Protestants and Catholics, between uh, Protestant and Jews. It was open discrimination. Yeah, the Ku Klux Klan 
goes marching against Catholics and Jews. So under the Christian flag, right? So we think of this as being somehow religious people, but the religious divisions were among the strongest in the country. So in many ways, we became a Christian nation in opposition, uh, certainly to these Jews, and frankly, in opposition to a lot of these Catholics as well in the late 19th, early 20th century. So I have the right answer to your question, Nathan. (laughs) We become a Judeo-Christian nation after World War II, and we become a Judeo-Christian nation in opposition, not to ourselves this time, but to those godless communists. And compared to that godless communism, the doctrinal differences, the differences between Jews and Catholics and Protestants, they all pale. Mm. Well, now, this is a really a pretty interesting point, Brian, and, 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 and surprise, surprise, I'm going to disagree. Um, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely true that the mid-1950s represents a moment where you begin to see the introduction of overt declarations of religiosity in American civic life. You have In God We Trust added to the currency. You have One Nation Under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance. But there's an earlier tradition that really does draw from a kind of fiery, prophetic, you know, progressive Christianity that is trying to unmake slavery during the abolition period. It's certainly leading to the expansion of citizenship and the registering of voters through the era of Reconstruction, the attempt to try to unmake Jim Crow segregation um, is absolutely part of the American Christian tradition. And that's certainly before the 1950s and on through the 1960s. I mean, you could actually find people in large swaths of the religious community in America who would believe that you can justify segregation from the Bible. And they would quote chapter and verse. And, And one of the great victories of the civil rights era may well be a theological one that made it impossible to use the Bible, at least mostly impossible, to use the Bible to justify things like racial segregation. People like Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, among their many accomplishments, was in fact a way to take Christianity and kind of settle its argument, at least on the question of equality and whether or not the Constitution meant equality for everybody. Talk about fundamental values. Right. And that's kind of a reminder of something that is sort of implied in a lot of what we've been saying, but we haven't said outright. And that is that it's not, what we're talking about here is not that America isn't a religious nation. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the fact that it's an exceedingly religious nation, that people are invested in religion to an extreme degree here. <laughs> Do I hear an amen? We have How a convert in Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but what's happening in the debate that's going on now, I think, is not so much about religion, but about religions claiming ownership. And that's a different issue entirely. That's a that's a different conversation in a lot of ways. You know, I guess it does help to remind me not to necessarily think that the president or anyone who might be speaking in religious tones necessarily is a true believer or is that committed, say, to you know bringing Merry Christmas back as the default holiday, but that we have arrived at a point in this country through its history where we have to be able to speak in religious tones and speak at least in ways that would bring people of faith into a broader civic conversation because they've always been there. And the question is how big and broad that conversation will be. Mm-hmm. Do I still get my tax break? (laughs) (laughs) 
A warning for our listeners, perhaps parents. This next segment contains some disturbing images. We end our first draft conversations usually with a footnote. And this is where we share something that one of us has found in the archive that struck us in some way. The footnote I want to bring today is actually, it's a political image, a cartoon. It dates back to 1774, right after the Boston Tea Party, uh, which was protesting against a tea tax, and the punishment that followed the Tea Party, the Boston Port Act, which closed the port of Boston until Boston paid for the tea. Now, the image is really striking. It shows a woman being held down, her arms and her legs held down by men. One of them is looking up her skirt. Her clothing has been torn away. Her breasts are exposed. And tea is being forced down her throat. Mm. Now, think about what that image shows, right? It's showing America, and as, as a woman, that's a, a coded way of saying America is virtuous, being mm. raped of her virtue and value by Britain, and that she has no power to defend herself. What struck me today in thinking about that image was, essentially, that's a cartoon about rape. And it's a fundamental image of the American Revolution. It's a way that Americans are trying to justify revolt. Mm -hmm. And I haven't thought about that image in that way before. You know, I just, I didn't put that label on it. Now, it is a discussion of rape that's being drawn by men, right? So they can politicize it and use it as a symbol and do whatever else because the particular men making this cartoon have drained some of the humanity out of it. But what's striking to me is that I know that cartoon. I've seen it many times and I never picked up on the fact that it's a rape. And mm. that just struck me that it's an example of the ways in which gender and power can be right in front of our face and we don't see it. So what made you see so it, Joanne? Well, what made me think of it is the Harvey Weinstein scandal that, in which basically he has been sexually harassing and abusing actresses for a very long time. And now there's been sort of an avalanche of women coming forward and actually voicing what happened, some of them for the first time. And in a way, what's happening now is people are saying, look, this has been here all along, and some of you have already seen it. But now we're really seeing it. Now we're actually talking about it in a different way. And I guess that was kind of my response to that cartoon. Mm. So, Joanne, I found your cartoon really powerful because obviously rape is an assertion of power. Uh, but the whole Harvey Weinstein incident has made that connection to me in a visceral way that, that has really brought it home to me, perhaps the way you're looking at this cartoon in a uh, in a different light, it's it's not as though you never thought uh, about uh, gender and you never thought about rape when you looked at these cartoons, but you're you're feeling it in ways that are different right now because of the headlines. Hmm. Well, and yet I'd say that the difference between that cartoon and the power that you're talking about that is gendered and it seems so strong and so visible right now is you haven't necessarily experienced it in this guttural way before, but of course every woman has experienced it that way in some way, probably every day.
That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Vishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.